The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We are recording this at 9am Irish time on Wednesday, December the 13th, and it's less than two hours since an agreement was announced at the COP28 negotiations in Dubai. We had been planning for a few days to discuss the, the broader underlying geopolitical tensions, the different strategies and the different actors with often very different interests and motives, which all form a part of this incredibly complex and important question of how how to mitigate climate change. And to do that, we were delighted to welcome uh, back economic historian Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at Clare College in Cambridge, and who's also co-host of the These Times podcast. Helen, you're very welcome. And don't worry, we're not going to ask you to give a breaking news report on, on what happened to <laughs> COP28 this morning. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> but I would like to ask what you make of the overall events of the, as they've unfolded over the last two weeks and whether, whether you think anything has changed in any significant way. I'm not really convinced that anything has changed in terms of the big picture of what is required to get where we need to get to and the actual political commitment in individual countries to accelerate the energy transition when it involves embracing significant costs. And I think that this is the issue that we keep like running back to because of the fact that the energy transition is incredibly complex and difficult thing to realise, certainly at any speed, and involves some really hard choices. And that's true, I think, in relation to domestic politics in individual countries, but it's also true in terms of geopolitics, and that these are the kind of questions that are not going to be faced, and never really faced, in uh, in international summit. Now, that doesn't mean, I think, that COPs are a waste of time. Quite the contrary because in some sense that they they set standards or at least ideal standards that then governments can use in what they do domestically. But I, I think that we shouldn't substitute, we shouldn't think rather that agreements, however welcome that they are in principle, are a substitute for serious action because serious action involves really hard choices. There seems to be, this is not a particularly original observation, but it seems to me that we have a kind of a, and by we, I mean the media and perhaps other analysts as well, our cognitive shortcomings are exposed when we start trying to write this or cover this in, in newspapers and broadcasts. We try and we try and turn it into some kind of a binary. So a lot of, a lot of the coverage of the last couple of weeks has been about uh, a move to, more aggressively move to decarbonisation faster, being led by the West and particularly by European countries and resistance to that on the other side, by particularly by petro-states uh, in the case of Dubai and, and others at the moment. But listening to some of the things that you said and some of the things you've written, that's opened my eyes up a bit to how vastly more complex the interlocking set of interests and conflicts of interest that are at play here. I mean, you've written, um, you've written extensively about the way in which so many historical events of the last century or so um, at, at their base are about questions of energy and resources. And now here we are on the threshold of an attempt at something which the human race has never attempted before, <laughs> which is uh, a coherent global approach 
to completely revolutionising the way the way we approach energy and resources. Could we go back to basics on this a little bit and talk about how fundamental for all of us here in Ireland, you in the UK, there in Europe, the United States, the idea of revolutionising energy resources away from fossil fuels is? Yeah, I mean, I think that you've put that very well, Hugh. I mean, I think there's two different things here. The first of them is understanding the enormity of the energy revolution. And if it succeeds, that's what it is. It's The energy transition is a, a misnomer in terms of the ideal. It's not a misnomer in terms of describing what's actually happening on the ground, in terms of where we're going with energy. But to achieve net zero by 2050 would be an energy revolution. And in order to understand them, why that's the case, we need both, I think, to understand that energy, it's in some sense the life force of the universe. And so we are doing something that is deeply profound, almost in a metaphysical sense, I'd say, like when we try to change the energy that we use. And in this case, if we leave nuclear power out of it, in terms of nuclear power being used to generate electricity, we're trying to move from high energy density, which is what coal, oil and gas are, to lower density uh, energy. And that means that the energy that we use has to do more work for, for what itself is. And so that in itself is quite an immense um, thing to do. Then when we think that we've got to basically reconfigure the entire infrastructure of our material civilization because it's all set up to work around fossil fuel energy and the provision of electricity for certain things but not for other things like not mass transportation outside railways for instance that adds again to the immensity uh, of the task and then once we've taken the straightforward and then obviously straightforward energy questions themselves into consideration We've got to think about history and we've got to think about the history of past energy transitions, which has never been about taking an energy source away. It's only been about adding energy sources. So the age of coal, as I would sometimes call it, didn't come to an end really when the age of oil began. It became the age of coal and oil and then it became the age of coal, oil and gas. And so what we're trying to do, say never been done before, is actually eliminate energy sources that have been used for several centuries. And then if we add the geopolitical history into it, we're trying to do it in a way which, as you said, actually presumes international, at least some level of international cooperation. And again, that has not really featured in any energy transition in human history before. No, indeed, because the energy transitions have often accompanied, you know, the rise of one global power at the expense of another, you know, the, the, the great kind of tectonic plates shifting of the 19th and 20th century. Energy underlies a huge amount of them, the Industrial Revolution, the rise of the United States as, as the world's hegemonic superpower, um, even down to, you know, more local, slightly more localised things like, you know, uh, almost a century of tension in the Middle East, uh, all all those kinds of, of, of issues. But can I ask you, it does seem to me, and I was listening to you talk about this on, on these times, that Europe has taken the lead on uh, pushing for the fastest possible move towards, towards decarbonisation. But 
as with all the actors in this, it's it, it's doing that because European leaders believe that that there is a real threat which needs to be addressed, but also because to some extent it chimes with Europe's own own interests and its own challenges in terms of energy resources. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's fair to say that generally, once we get into the the twentieth century, or the very end of the nineteenth century, perhaps, and oil is added to the mix, and this isn't actually really as an energy source in in daily life, particularly to begin with, it's the prospect of oil fueled navies that drive a lot of deep European anxiety in that time period. I think that European leaders at that point understood really quite well that oil was going to change the geopolitics of the world and the sense that they were going to have serious difficulties, even the most powerful of them at that time, Britain, because Britain didn't have any domestic oil and the parts of the world which it had under imperial control at the beginning of the 20th century, which obviously didn't include the Middle East, were not particularly propitious where oil was concerned. And then that the first half of the the 20th century was an utter catastrophe for European states uh, in this new energy world compounded by the fact that there were still ongoing problems from the old energy world around coal because of the Franco-German conflict and France's weak coal position and Germany's stronger position. Now, in the post-Second World War world, Europeans stopped fighting each other about coal and that they were not able, the British accepted through to the end of the 1960s, to engage in an imperial solution to their oil problems. And then from the late 60s onwards, some European countries, one of which obviously was um, Britain, benefited from domestic oil via the North Sea and gas when gas was becoming more significant um, as an energy source. But that still left quite a lot of European states, not least West Germany, in like real difficulties. And it's not a coincidence at all, I think, that it was Germany that really of the large European states has really driven the energy transition the longest because it's the state of the large European states that has got the most traumatic history where energy in the 20th century was concerned and didn't get the advantages that the British, the Norwegians and the Dutch got from oil and gas. And obviously in the Dutch case, it was the Groningen field on shore. So we would expect, I think, that a continent that had relatively high standards of living in a global sense, but had weak energy basis in which to, domestic energy basis in which to support that, to be looking to move away once it saw an opportunity to from the problems that fossil fuel energy created, particularly um, geopolitically, but also the subject to macroeconomic um, shocks. The difficulty for the European states, particularly I think the North European states is, uh, and in parts even particularly um, Germany, is the geographical conditions for solar are not particularly good. And when it comes to the metal world, which is central to being able both to decarbonise electricity and to electrify um, transport, that Europe is not geographically advantaged in the same way in which it was geographically disadvantaged 
by oil at the turn of the, the, the 20th century. And the empire option, which is really what the British and the French pursued through the 20th century, uh, at least until they were, you know, to the end of the 1960s, though the French sort of continued in a more complicated way, perhaps, thereafter. And that's not an option any longer. So it has to be done um, via investment um, partnerships. And that runs into the fact that um, the countries in the global south um, have got their own energy interests and they're not just going to accommodate whatever it is that European governments want to do. So is this a story of another story of Europe not speaking with one voice to to some extent? I mean, obviously, the other thing about Germany that Europe's largest economy is it took a turn away from the other option, which mm. is nuclear, which is the which is the option that the French have have pursued enthusiastically. So you have this very large country within Europe, which is heavily fossil fuel dependent, and perhaps as a result of that, is the one that's most, in theory at least, most enthusiastic about about, about a move away towards towards renewables, uh, because it doesn't have any resources of its own. But the French are taking an entirely different route, and that, mm. that then plays out with a somewhat bifurcated kind of European approach. Yeah, I mean, I do think that this is both very striking, and if you look at it from a historical perspective, and that we could see over the course, I would say of at least a year now and perhaps longer, that it's proving pretty divisive within the, the European Union, because we know that a lot of the ability of the European Union to move forward depends upon the state of Franco-German relations. And I think there are other reasons why Franco-German relations have not been great of late. But I think that this nuclear energy question and the disagree- profound disagreement over it is a significant part of that. And I think you can sort of see what the stakes here are in a quite like simple way, if you like, which is to say, if you have France, which is saying that not only is it sticking with its existing nuclear commitment, but it's doubling down on it. So Macron talking about a nuclear renaissance in France, because obviously the existing reactors are reaching the end of the, towards the end of their um, life and will need to be um, replaced relatively quickly. Then you have a resource strategy that is going to be centred upon uranium. And you can see French moves in that, even in the last year, because one of the countries that had hitherto provided about a quarter of French uranium, Niger, fell to an anti-French coup um, in the summer. If you're Germany um, and uh, you've got your nuclear reactors like closed down and you really want solar and wind to do much more of the work in decarbonising electricity, then your issues are all about whether you can make those solar panels Uh, and wind turbines in in Germany itself, whether you're going to be dependent upon supplies, particularly from China, and that you are going to be interested in a geopolitics of energy strategy that is focused on the crucial metal-producing countries, which is not the same as the ones who are going to be be providing as sellers of uranium. And even that fact alone of like saying, well, actually, if you're going nuclear, you go one way in terms of where you need your resources from. And if you're going wind and solar, you go the other way. That in itself makes it very difficult for the European Union to have a a clear geopolitical strategy. And that's before we get onto a a whole host of like other questions, including the options for the Mediterranean countries about alliances with North African 
um, countries. But just the simple, is it nuclear, is it solar and wind, that takes your resource strategy, if you're trying to do it at the collective European Union level, in opposite directions. Yeah, it seems to me that this whole area brings back into much clearer focus the importance of geographical proximity. It sort of makes it much more important than maybe it's been for the last 50 or 60. Obviously, it was always important in politics. But now the question of connectivity, building grids, being close to these new sources of power, for example, solar from the south of Europe or maybe from North Africa, become much more important as well, don't they? No, absolutely. And I think that that's both a a function of like where the resources are. But it also, as you said here, it's also very much, I think this is going to come increasingly to the fore, um, a function of like who you can build electricity interconnectors with. And I think that you're going to see, and we're already seeing it, it's not just we're going to see, but we're going to see like more of it. You know, there clearly is like a, a cluster like around the North Sea, which would include obviously the United Kingdom and Ireland in that, and then bringing France on the Atlantic side of France into that picture, that sort of works. But that's very different than the southern European countries across the Mediterranean, particularly the further east that you go um, along the the Mediterranean. Well, on the west side, you've got Spain and Morocco, but on the east side, you're talking about Greece and Egypt now looking at building uh, an interconnector. So this actually, for the Mediterranean countries, takes this out of Europe. It takes it into North Africa. And you're never going to get a situation where the the Finns are going to be providing, having a, you know, an interconnector with Algeria, say. I mean, it's just, it, it, it just, it's just not going to work like that. And if we, if we think that energy does drive quite a lot of geopolitics, then, it, you know, if you were very energy determinist about it, you would say, here lies the road to fragmentation. Now, I don't think it is quite like that because I, I don't think that electricity con- interconnectors are the same thing um, as um, where fossil fuels um, mm. are located. It's a different kind of energy relationship. But I still think it, it will have consequences politically within the European Union because it will both mean, again, that there are divergent priorities between member states, but also that it's not difficult to see, like, say, in this Northern European part, how it creates some kind of common interests, including perhaps with a state like the United Kingdom that isn't actually in the European Union. Is there a sense, which is rooted in science, in the fact that, you know, some fossil fuels are more damaging than others? Coal, I mean, to simplify it, coal is worse, oil is slightly less worse, gas is slightly less worse than oil. That people have used that fact, when I say people, I mean, particularly the Germans, people have used that fact perhaps to to almost sanitise gas for a while and that this, uh, for to use an unfortunate metaphor, kind of blew up in their face with the invasion of Ukraine and that reliance of gas was, was exposed as a, as a huge weakness. Yeah, I think this gas question is really interesting because if you go back, I'd say even like 2018, 2017, 18, you can see a lot of talk still about gas as a transition energy source. And you can see why that was the case. I mean, if you look at the United States um, in the 2010s, its emissions come down, not insignificantly, I mean, not really sharply, but not insignificantly. Um, The reason for that um, is that the US shale gas boom allowed for much greater use of gas in the US electricity generation, in American electricity generation, much less use of coal than had previously been the case. And I think if you look at the actions of European governments through the 2010s, actually 
even through 2019, which I think was a watershed year, you can see that they are still very interested um, in new gas projects and like where pipelines are being built. But at the same time, I think that there's a, for various reasons, a growing sense of the geopolitical danger of gas. And I think it actually predates Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think actually a significant part of it goes back to um, the Trump administration ending the nuclear deal with Iran because the way did that in terms of the extraterritorial sanctions that could be used against companies, other countries' companies that still carried on doing business in um, Iran um, meant that it was very difficult for the European companies to stay in their gas projects. There, if you remember, there, there was quite an attempt to find some kind of funding way around it, but it was to no avail in that respect. So I actually think that that probably encouraged European governments to think uh, actually gas will be more of a complication geopolitically than we had um, imagined. And that meant that gas became much more lumped with oil as, well, and coal, but as problems. And the narrative of it being a transition um, source has, has gone away. But having said all that, if you look at the actions of European governments since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent end of pipeline gas from Russia to most but not all European states, brought about, remember, by the Russians and not actually by Europeans, governments, um, is is that they want to sign new long-term gas contracts wherever they can, even the Germans. Mm. And that doesn't suggest, actually, that they've given up on gas. I mean, the, the whole part of this that I, I find kind of mind-boggling is the fact that in order to create this transition, you have to have a new industrial revolution, really, which also involves vast amounts of really large-scale manufacturing, which by definition, uh, is at the moment anyway, is, is certainly is, is going, to, going to contribute to, to carbon emissions, like these vast steel edifices going up off the coastlines of, of Europe and, and other continents, not to mention the whole other part of it, which we haven't even mentioned, which is changing over the entire heating systems of most mm. countries, including domestic heating and the way we transport ourselves around as well to, to electrification and in, an entire transformation there. And one which I, I find myself having some reservations about whether it's going to be politically feasible apart from anything else. We already see resistance in Germany and, uh, and in other countries to, to attempts to, to um, get rid of domestic boilers in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's several different things like going on here, in one sense, I think that the the heat pumps issue is where technology is concerned is is quite actually straightforward. Is that it is a way of electrifying like domestic um, heating. The issue is is that not in all houses because obviously it depends when these houses are built, but in many people living in older houses is is that you are not going to swap one kind of heating experience being generated by gas for the same heating experience being generated by electricity. And that's before we even get to the question like uh, of the costs to the individual households of, of um, doing this and the questions of whether there are enough quite simply trained engineers to do this with any competence in relation to the timetable set by governments, which I think has been part of the issue in Germany. And so you're going to expect domestic 
political resistance or you know, to change that is imposed by law on what people do in their homes. I mean, I think that that's kind of like like baked in. It's not, as I say, though, anything like the most technologically difficult problem in the energy like, transition. But that shows, I think, just like how much of a political problem it is when actually it's not it's not difficult. I mean, the difficulties come in terms of like how far it works in uh, it provides adequate heating in, in uh, older houses. I think that the really, though, potentially intractable problem in regard to both climate change and the resilience of the existing fossil fuel energy regime, which in my view is not particularly resilient, is, as you said, though, the fact that actually you have to use the existing fossil fuel energy regime in order to to try to bring about its end. Because the actual act of the energy transition is very energy intensive and the new energy is neither sufficient nor adequate in terms of what it can do to do the things that the existing fossil fuel energy regime can do. And the difficulty, I think, that I don't think is really being taken on board that well is that what we can see where the existing fossil fuel energy regime is concerned is, is that any periods of reasonable growth in the world economy, even on a quarter-by-quarter quarter basis, I'd say, at the moment, push oil prices and gas prices up, to some extent coal prices as well. And and so that the very fact that you try to utilise more energy from the existing fossil fuel energy regime to bring about what you're trying to do, the more macroeconomic problems that you cause and the more macroeconomic problems that you cause, the less conducive environment that you have for investment and the less willingness then of investors to say, actually, we're going to be investing in this new mega battery plant or wind turbine plant, whatever whatever it, it um, is. And I think that that change between the monetary environment in 2019 when net zero and EU Green Deal was legislated for and the monetary environment now with significantly higher interest rates has really become quite an important problem. We'll hold a thought on that conundrum. We're just going to take a quick break. We'll be back after this. You welcome back. Uh, Helen Thompson is, is still with me. Helen, you were talking about this sort of conundrum of the of the, the relationship between monetary policy and uh, and climate change mitigation. And we we focused largely on Europe up to now, but you know there have been major initiatives in the United States, uh, which I mentioned at the outset, the hegemonic superpower for most of uh, for most of the last century or so, um, an energy powerhouse in its own right, and. The, um, the 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 Biden administration has certainly you know moved America to a new level on on this. Is America in a better position to implement the necessary changes than Europe because of its, I suppose, economic power? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the fact that the fossil fuel energy regime, particularly in relation to gas, yields much cheaper energy than it does in. In Europe, and gas is quite central to industrial production in um, in a number of ways. We can see the consequences uh, of more expensive gas for Germany, where industrial production is concerned, quite clearly now. 
I think that that gives the United States, just on that fact alone, a, a quite significant advantage. So you can already see, and I think BASF is a is a good example um, of this, a German chemical um, company, like in response to events uh, last year of like saying, look, we need to be able to manufacture stuff where the energy costs are lower. And that just isn't going to be in Germany with the, the gas situation that Germany um, now faces. So on that alone, the United States has a really significant advantage uh, because it is gas that matters more in terms of industrial production than, than oil does. If we then add in the fact that the United States has, under Joe Biden, um, decided not only to embrace the energy transition attempted energy transition strongly, but to do so in a way that is quite protectionist at its heart and basically trying to attract investor capital into the United States by giving tax break incentives for that and then saying when you are here, you are going to be using American produced components, essentially, um, if you want these tax credits, it's very difficult, I think, for either the European Union collectively and even more so for the United Kingdom as a state outside that to uh, to compete with that. Obviously, the European Union has tried to, to have, a, have a response to the Inflation Reduction Act, but the enticements that can be offered just do not, I think, compete with what can be offered by the United States. And then the United States, it's not as um, geographically advantaged, I think, by metals as it was by oil at the beginning of the, the 20th century. Generally, with the possible exception of Russia, the most important metals for the energy transition are in the, in, in the southern hemisphere. But there are still, I think, better prospects for some of what's required in the United States than in most of Europe. And I think the sheer size of the United States and the fact that the population density is not really like what it is in Europe makes the prospect of domestic metal mining a more politically feasible proposition in the United States than it will be in Europe. I don't mean to say by that that there won't be resistance to domestic metal mining in the United States, but I don't think it will be as formidable as the resistance to it in Europe is likely to be. Is it inevitable that the sort of competition you're you're talking about there is going to lead to higher trade barriers, the emergence of new blocks, perhaps will mm -hmm. form part of what we've seen on a political level for several years now, which is a push back against the the kind of the globalization process? I think that this isn't this is an interesting question because in principle I'm not sure that it had to be this way in the sense that I see like no reason if we took geopolitics and domestic politics out of it, which I, I know that I'm going to say that you can't really do that, but if, if we were just looking at it in a, in a more abstract sense, that we couldn't say, look, the old globalised economy, solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, they will just get manufactured wherever that can be done most cheaply, easy to move them from one part of the world to uh, another for trading purposes. If you like, let the chips fall where they do. 
But if we think about it, I think, in any politically realistic sense, particularly because I think that a lot of political leaders do have a, some kind of understanding of the, the geopolitical history of, of energy. The idea, I think, that an American administration, ultimately of either political persuasion in, in the United States, was going to say, OK, we are going to do this energy transition and we don't care that all the solar panels are coming from China and we don't care that all the rare earth that we need are coming minerals are coming from China. I just don't think that that's politically like plausible. So once I think the American political class, if you like, woke up to just how serious China was about this, which I think came with the Made in China 2025 moment in 2015, we've seen that complete vault farce, pretty much of the entire, as I say, American political class. It, well, Trump just sort of put his you know, head above the parapet and said it out loud first. But the, he, on this issue, he was just part of a much bigger shift um, that was going on. I think that the, the bit that then complicates it again is is because of the timing of events, shall we say, in the second half of the 2010s after Made in China 2025 and 2015, you then had both in the way in which Boris Johnson tried to set up his government after the December after the last general election in the UK in December 2019, and then the way in which Biden tried has tried and continuing to try to set up his presidency in terms of, like, let's try and, if you like, put bulwarks in place against repetitions of the votes that led to Brexit and Trump, and basically saying we need to, in some sense, reshore manufacturing production and try and make the energy transition something that is leading growth and doing that in a way where the manufacturing jobs are in our own country. I think that's quite at the centre of what levelling up was supposed to be on paper about in the UK. It's what Biden, when he was able to call it the Green New Deal, was how he was conceiving the energy transition in the United States, is that that's the bit that wasn't, I think, sort of completely built in, if you see what I mean, in the sense of like having these countries that experienced political shocks in 2016, saying we have to do the energy transition in ways that act as a, try to act as a bulwark against repetition of that. So when you add that in, and obviously that does, particularly in the American case, have a relationship to the China question because so many of the manufacturing jobs were offshored to China, then I think it becomes much more difficult to see how this energy transition was ever going to happen in a globalised world and it's going to happen in this much more geopolitically charged world. And indeed, and, and just in terms of what you've just said, it, I mean, it seems to me that if anybody's winning the manufacturing this new uh, post-carbon world competition at the moment it's, it's the chinese you know with their car industry with their Absolutely, solar panel yeah. industry they're 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 an advertisement perhaps for a one-party state approach to uh <laughs> to, to, to changing the world in 50 years well i think several things i mean you're absolutely um right that that china is winning this competition pretty much like hands down at the moment um and i think even in the united states uh it's already clear that the it may be harder for the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act to work to change that than many people um, hoped, that it may well not be anything like sufficient to offer the kind of financial incentives that are on offer, particularly given that uh, China operates 
its own it goes about the question in a different way about how it subsidizes these sectors but it's absolutely in the game of of doing it and it may be that catch-up is not possible at least not in the short to the near medium term and and that is before we get even on to this area where china has the resource advantage which is rare earths they're not actually rare uh, in the sense of like there, there's plenty to be found in other parts of the world. But China has treated rare earths as a strategic priority since the Mao period, not even just the latter Mao period, the early Mao period, since like the early 1950s. It's incredibly well endowed with the with rare um, earths. It's probably one of the, the few things in the world where China's got an obvious geographical advantage, because in other respects, I think it has some difficulties with these kind of um, questions, but they've also been willing to engage in the very ecologically destructive mining that rare earth mining requires. And that's part of the reason why the Americans have been reluctant to go down that road. But even under the conditions, even at the way in which the Inflation Reduction is acting at the, at the moment, then the United States is dependent on, on the import of rare earths from China. And China has already shown a willingness back in 2010 against the Japanese in a dispute over some islands, I think, in the South China Sea, to use the export of um, rare earths as a, or export controls on rare earths as a, as a geopolitical weapon. So it isn't just the economic question here that arises from China's advantages. It's like at a certain point, particularly on this side, would China uh, actually try to restrict or inhibit the ability of the Americans to pursue the energy transition in a way from comparable in Chinese leadership's mind to the way in which the United States is now clearly trying to impede China's technological um, development in terms of the semiconductor chip ban. So if the current sort of Cold War between the US and China got a little bit warmer, that's a tool in the Chinese arsenal possibly? It is. I mean, I think that the Americans, it's not that they don't have cards in in this respect, because China still has a fundamental set of weaknesses around its foreign oil and gas dependency, um, particularly in relation to the volume um, of oil, in particular, that it um, imports by the sea and through the, the Strait of Malacca and the ability in a, say, a conflict over Taiwan for the American Navy to to blockade. So I think that it's not that there wouldn't be considerable risks for China for doing that. It just means, I think, that there is a more complicated set of geopolitical pressure points that are now in play, because if energy is an important driver of geopolitical tension, and we move to, uh, we are in a multiple energy source world, then we would expect multiple sources of energy-driven geopolitical tension. And that the more that we do with energy in this respect, uh, in terms of adding to what we've previously been doing, the more tension we should expect. I mean, there's some counters to that. And as I say, I think electricity interconnectors are a bit of a counterexample. 
I was only joking about the benefits of the one-party state, really, but there is no <laughs> doubt that, you know, in democratic countries in, in Europe and, and in North America, you know, we can see that the concept of green lash is becoming more of a, coming higher up the political agenda mm. um, and it's feeding into, you know, certain types of populist politics. And I think we can uh, reasonably anticipate that, you know, some of the parties that that have expressed more climate skepticism um, are likely to do pretty well in some elections over the next over the next two or three years. I mean, you know, Trump says in the first day he's going to drill, drill, drill. Um, you know, the AFD are not exactly fond of, mm-hmm. of, of these heat pumps in, in Germany. I suppose it's inevitable, isn't it, that um, what we described as the outset is one of the most fundamental changes in uh, human history is going to have real consequences on the ground and cause real real political conflict and uncertainty. I don't think that, that there's really any way around that because, I mean, w- once you understand the, the magnitude of the uh, attempted energy revolution, the idea that it could happen, if if you like, in a, in a politically neutral way without that much political disruption just seems like almost absurd. In fact, I would say it becomes absurd and then I think you've got to factor in the fact that at a certain point, and we're not obviously there yet, that the issue of the personal ownership of cars is is going to become central. Because at the moment, there are more electric vehicles on the on the road, obviously, than was previously the case. But there aren't any requirements in, in place that affect people's ability to buy a car. The things that we're talking about, like, say, in in the UK, using the UK as an example here because I sort of know what the timescales are, have been about, like, what the, the dates are for the, the banning of the sale of new internal combustion engine cars. But most people don't buy new cars. So, actually, that issue of like whether it's like 2030 or whether it's 2034 2035 affects like a relatively small number of voters once you get into the territory of we're going to ban the sale of internal combustion cars full stop then we're in a whole different political territory then that raises the question of whether actually we are going to replicate mass car ownership in an age of electrified transport, whether it's possible to do that, whether it is the case that electric cars can be made cheap enough for um, most people to buy, whether there'll be a big enough secondhand or used car market to make um, this work. And if we go back and look at the history of, of car ownership in the first place, is where it took off at the beginning of the 20th century, with the one place where oil kind of matters in the domestic politics for this reason um, in a way in which it's just navy concerns in in um in europe you can see early on that actually this issue of the fact that only the affluent had the very rich had cars was um very very divisive i mean woodrow wilson i think it was in around it was quite some time before he became president said there was nothing he thought that was sending the united states closer to socialism than the rise of car ownership, meaning that rich people had them and most people didn't. And it was all changed by the the, the, the Model T car. And uh, Henry Ford had a quite deliberate idea that he was democratising like car ownership. 
So I, I, I think if if we then put that to now, like where's that coming from this time around? Because I think if if it doesn't happen, if there can't be the same moment of like democratizing electric vehicles in a social and economic sense, we're heading into some of the same like, political difficulties that that will be in, worries that were being expressed in the in the United States at the at the turn of the century. And in one sense, it'll be even harder because the car has become such a symbol. In some sense, in Western countries, it sort of became a symbol of like personal freedom. So actually, if we move into um, a political world in which that personal freedom is being curtailed, then there's absolutely no way that that can't be a, a really huge political moment. And that's why I think that, that there's kind of really like hard questions about this that haven't really been asked. Like, was this the best way of going about doing this? Was actually trying to create electrified mass public transit not perhaps not a better option than making the electric vehicles so front and center to the energy transition i think that's an absolutely fascinating point and it kind of and it resonates here in ireland as well where the government's climate plan here is in my view somewhat unrealistically to have about a million electric vehicles on the road in in in, in 10 years time and it's sort of and some optimists will point to the idea of, you know, self-driving cars as moving us to a different sort of environment where everybody doesn't feel the need to own a car because a mm. car is available within five minutes to show up at your door. That may or may not be likely. But isn't it the reality is that it's not just the vehicles themselves. We've built our whole societies. Uh, spatial development and planning mm. uh, is built around the concept of the personal freedom of a car. And you can see now the backlash beginning against certain talk of how 15-minute cities are going to be oppressive totalitarian uh, programs and things like that. I mean, it's not just a question of changing the engine in the car. It'd be a question of re-engineering the, place, the spaces we live in too. No, absolutely. And, and obviously that's a lot easier to do like in, in some places than in, um, in others. Sure. And you know, we take the UK, it's a lot easier to think about this in, in like London where actually quite a lot of people don't have cars. You know, it has a, um, a pretty good public like, transit system. But even if you look at some of the other medium-sized cities, or not other, but the medium-sized cities in in UK, that certainly isn't the case. And once you get into like towns, villages, <laughs> you know, the car is just completely has a fundamentally different relationship to people's everyday lives Absolutely. than it does in exactly in, the same in, in Ireland, Ireland. Exactly. In London, yeah. yeah. And so, if you then think about the ways in which big cities and towns, as a political contrast played into let's say the brexit like referendum you can see some of those fault lines that are just going to be put on much much harder actually than 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 that disruption in like the 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 2016 because it presses on something in terms of daily life that's much more existential really than in many ways the brexit question was i'm not trying to minimize the brexit question in that um sense i'm just saying there's there's something that runs very like both materially deep but symbolically deep here as well can I finally, can I ask you what may be an impossible question and feel free to tell me it's impossible. <laughs> looking at all of that, looking at the geopolitical tensions and competitions, looking at the enormous technological challenges, looking at the the immense social change, looking at the almost inevitable political opposition, are the kind of timescales that were being talked about at COP28, are they at all achievable or realistic? Uh, I think that... that in one sense, no, and um, they're not. I think that it's also true, though. Two things I would say that we have to like bear in mind about the time question is that there has to be reasonable medium-term 
confidence or let's not even say confidence better optimism even perhaps if it's not well-founded optimism in order to create an investment environment in which there's any possibility like whatsoever like of getting there so in some sense i mean this is where i'm always caught because on the one hand i think that we need a lot more realism about what the magnitude of this is but we also have to recognize that gung-ho optimism is historically part of economic like transformation too that i think that tension somehow just has to be held and i think that we also need to bear in mind that the fossil fuel energy system on its own terms as i've said before is not really that resilient there would be very 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 good reasons for us to be trying to do an energy transition or at least to, to significantly reduce the amount of fossil fuel energy that we are using, even if there was no climate change problem. And so in that sense, once we bear in mind that we have to use the existing fossil fuel energy system in order to try to move to a different energy system, then just kicking the can down the road, also, even in these terms, let alone the climate terms, runs into this difficulty because it's not like you can just, like, endlessly i think like stretch the life out of this fossil fuel energy system without running into what's likely to be at some point i mean i'm not going to put time dates on it but into systemic crisis and particularly i would say where oil is concerned so in that sense the there's an urgency that comes from from this side of it as well as from the climate side of it so optimism is our only option i think that's a that's, that's not a bad approach <laughs> Helen Thompson, thanks so much for joining us again today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Hugh. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. Until then, thank you for listening.